is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This week, we are offering four conversations from Season 3, Episode 13, our discussion on the draft guidance from NICE in the UK about reimbursing fiber scan screening in primary care and community settings. This conversation starts out with me discussing the general Surfing Nash viewpoint on the complexity of Nash as a longitudinal disease and the value of community screening in identifying and educating patients early in the disease process. Ian Rowe proceeds to provide context about NICE's mandate and how it operates. He notes that while a decision to not to fund fiber scan at this time might be understandable, as he puts it. He, and I quote, believes it might not benefit patients in the best way, end of quote. He goes on to state that he is unaware of data that answers the exact question NICE was charged with answering here. And from there, Louise Campbell identifies some flaws she found in the research methodology used to answer this question and discusses the consequences for less fortunate people living in the UK. Finally, Chris Estes, lead modeler for the Center for Disease Analysis Foundation, notes that this kind of analysis performs best when there's accurate, fairly granular data to measure direct and indirect costs and benefits, many of which in this case might occur years in the future. While on one level this discussion is entirely about the UK, the issues are universal, even if the solutions are somewhat country-specific. Every health payer in the world, public and private, will face some version of what we discuss here over the next few years. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. Let me shift to the podcast for today. One of our interests since we got started here has been to extend awareness and screening in a way that advances patient wellness rather than simply avoiding patient illness. Louise has been articulate for only at this point about 109 episodes and she missed the first three in how important she views wellness as being. And Donna Cryer and others have come on the podcast repeatedly have made the same point. This is an episode about wellness and illness and about the complexity of NASH. One of the things I talk about a lot is because I'm old, I guess, or American or both, is that I remember in 1969, when Richard Nixon announced that he was going to start the war on cancer. And at that point in time, we believed there was a thing called cancer and there was a way to treat it. Over time, of course, we've learned that there is not one thing called cancer, that every cancer is different. And the fact that the cancer appears on a body part doesn't mean it's the same cancer as somebody else's. Over time, I think we're starting to learn the same things about NASH through the various omics and through the other ways that we've done research and things we've learned about drugs, that NASH is not a simple disease where you get a NASH score and a fibrosis score, but many different manifestations and many different ways of getting there were two common outcomes and even within that, two diseases. So specifically, F4 cirrhosis is a liver disease. It portends serious, fairly short-term liver morbidities, increases in HEC and transplantation and death, and requires aggressive attention from hepatologists. We probably don't have enough hepatologists anywhere in the world to treat everybody with F2 and F3, certainly not F1. But those earlier stages of fibrosis are part of a metabolic syndrome that encompasses diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular disease, probably a few other things. One of the problems is that it's easy to measure glycohemoglobin. It's easy to measure BMI. There are easy measures for cardiovascular. There are no clear and easy measures for fatty liver disease. But the idea that the liver serves as the energy regulator and, and manager for the whole body means that its impact is almost certainly far greater than what we can measure today. And again, almost certainly, no, let me say certainly, more than simply an after effect of obesity or, or a knock-on from diabetes. And even earlier than that, simple presence of fatty liver was demonstrated to predict outcomes in patients with COVID-19. That and the pancreas being the only two organs shown to be able to do so. That's not that COVID-19 affected the liver 
converts that how much fatty liver you had affected your response to COVID-19. So against that backdrop, we have NICE issuing a month ago draft guidance on the use of FibroScan in community settings in the UK. Now, the comment period runs through March 9th, and we're going to be talking about this this episode. But the key conclusion in the draft guidance is, and I'm going to read this, using FibroScan to assess liver fibrosis or cirrhosis for adults in primary or community care has potential to provide significant patient and healthcare system benefits. However, there is not enough certainty to recommend it as a clinically effective and cost-saving option for routine use. They then go on to talk about the need to do more research and where that might go. What we've done today is to convene a group of people who collectively, I think, are really well-equipped to explore that full statement and the recommendation from different perspectives and talk about what it means, what it tells us, and what other ways we NICE might want to think about things in the statement. We will post the NICE statement on the website with all of the episode briefings so that you can get after it if you want to. But I think right now we should just kind of dive in. So I'd like to ask each of you folks, having looked at the statement, to take a couple minutes, two or three literally, as much as five if you need them, and tell us what you see in that statement when you read it from your unique perspective. Brave one, go first. Ian Rowe. So so I'll, I'll jump in, Roger, because I think there is a bit of context for the listeners about what the role of NICE is in the UK. So, so NICE is there to provide cost-effectiveness analyses for the whole of UK healthcare to allow rational, in inverted commas, decisions to be made about healthcare spend, both from a, mostly from a cost-effectiveness and clinical effectiveness perspective. The analysis that they were asked to do, or had commissioned, was a, around looking at the use of transient elastography or fibroscan in primary care or community settings, as opposed to its delivery in secondary care. And that's a very tight question. It sort of suffers a bit from a lack of data about both how well the test works in primary care, but also some known data gaps. And those particularly cover what happens when a patient's had a scan result and whether that alters the trajectory of their disease. That is and remains a really important data gap from a trial perspective, but also from a sort of real world data perspective too. So that the outcome of the decision making from NICE is a function of the question that they're asked and the data that they're able to see and the relative costs. It's a an understandable decision, but it may not be one that benefits the wider patient pool in the best way. So do me a favor, elaborate on that a bit as somebody, remembering that they have comment period, as somebody who has bunches of data on things that are at least related to this issue, what do you think is the data they would benefit most from? What are you, what are you aware of that's available right now that might be brought to their attention that might help them view it differently? Or is anything complete enough yet to do that? I'm not aware of any data that comes directly from primary care about the use of elastography where it's not being guided through a care pathway and a secondary care service. So in Leeds we set up a community hepatology pathway which involved one of my colleagues going out into primary care at care and delivering fibrous scans there and that was very well received by patients. They liked the convenience, they liked not having to travel to the hospital, they liked getting the results there and then from the clinician who was doing the scan but that was secondary care service delivered in a primary care location. There are clear benefits from a patient perspective to delivering care in that way. But from a NICE perspective, there's no exclusively primary care delivered service with which to compare. So we don't know how well the tests are done, what information is given thereafter, and whether that changes the patient's trajectory. And that, I guess, is the big issue, is that how would fibroscan testing in primary care be regulated as the wrong word, but controlled so that it was being done within a defined clinical pathway so that the right patients were either referred for 
further evaluation or refer to community weight loss services or alcohol cessation services or whatever so that their patients were getting the right information to help them to improve their health. Okay. Ian, that was that was a really helpful statement and a great start. Anybody who wants to dive in next? Louise Campbell. I'm going to dive in next. Ian's absolutely correct in everything that he says about NICE. I think NICE is a completely valued body having sat for the RCN, gone through hepatitis C, and I think it can make some great judgments. This is through a diagnostic pathway. It is not being considered realistically within liver disease as a whole. It's a purely about the diagnostic test. What I didn't hear at the meeting was that there were anywhere else considered where this test could be done. It seemed to be that it was discussed in the premise that like a radiology department, and it was two radiologists, if I remember correctly, that did the presentation. So they weren't from a hepatology background. They were from a diagnostics background where you deliver diagnostics tests. So my take home from the way it was being viewed was the same way that people misconstrued it is that because it says scan that it's done in a diagnostic scanning department in radiology. 100 patients will come through the door, have their test and 100 patients will go out of the door. So it has no direct impact on the population within the department. Ian's quite right. This is not how Fibroscan is delivered in the UK and I'm not too sure about elsewhere. This is all specialist delivered. 2018 I think there were 375 Fibroscans in the UK. 55 of which sat in London all in specialist departments. 70% of all of those devices did not have CAP capability so we are talking about very very small cohort but for every 100 patients that comes through a, a department say my big department in a central London hospital where I worked and built a Fibroscan service we would take 30 of those patients and add them to our lists which therefore maxes out the capacity as you go down every time you do a list you take people off it and send people back to the community these nurses are now reutilized in looking after sick patients using specialist nursing teams to deliver either in reach to secondary care or outreach as Ian's quite right there is not a primary care direct referral service that is not delivered through a secondary care specialist center so there is no access to the normal population to Fibroscan I found it very interesting at the beginning when I say that they're into diversity and equity the British Liver Trust published a great paper last year that said 75% of our country do not have access to Fibroscan this doesn't change that standing it also continues to remove all access from low socioeconomic diverse communities who do not interact with secondary care people who inject drugs sex workers we keep this diagnostic in a very select community of people who access secondary care so it doesn't tick any of those boxes for me the other thing that was very very prominent there was not one discussion on how covid has affected the diagnostic pathways for liver disease or the need for diagnostic pathways for liver disease as relation to the pandemic and i don't think there can be one discussion that nice now has that does not consider the effect of the two-year backlog in waiting lists that we've got and how we're going to build back better if we do not utilize diagnostic and the third thing that really stuck out to me was there was an assumption that every single inpatient area in secondary care costed Fibroscan the same way so that the costs were equative on their cost modelling throughout the country. I know no two units that cost Fibroscan the same. I know one hospital that costs it at 
£50 a scan. I know an inner London hospital that puts a nurse tariff, a fibre scan tariff and a, an ultrasound tariff for the same appointment. So, and this is mainly because fibre scan when it first came out was too new a device to, and it was never costed through HRG4. There was never a pathway developed for it. So every single hospital had to develop their own way to get money in on it. Their cost modelling never considered the fact that nobody costs it the same. So therefore you cannot do a cost model if that's the case. If you are a secondary care department, and we did, we did outreach into drug and alcohol services. But if I have one nurse sitting there all day who does two scans, that makes that scan way more expensive than doing it in a secondary care location. That's just basic economics. So to say that it was more expensive in the community than it was in the secondary care, it's the same units providing it. But the one thing we remove when we do access in primary care is remove the £209 tariff that every single patient in my hospital had to pay or CCGs had to pay to even get the request for a fibre scan, which is where bringing it into the community removes that tariff and it's only applied then to the people who really need it. That wasn't discussed. Neither was the discussion of different pathways. You go to dermatology and then you need a fibre scan for methotrexate use. You need to go back to your GP. You need to go back into... There were lots of things that I thought were missed on just the basics and that doesn't touch on patient care. So let's step it back for a bit, okay? Because for the portion of our audience that lives in the UK, all that makes a lot of sense. There is a broader question at hand here. Ian says, even within that narrow window, there are a lot of things they didn't see. So not only a narrow window, but a dirty narrow window or a narrow window without really good glass. I'd like to broaden out the frame a little bit. Ian goes back to, what do we think the rational economics would likely be if we knew how to evaluate or if NICE were able to evaluate this through the context of its impact on care rather than simply at the very kind of micro, single event, funky economic level that you just described. And to that, I'm going to ask Jordan and Chris what they think, if either one wants to start there. Okay, Chris, go ahead. Chris Estes. Yeah, so when we looked at this, you know, from an economic modeling standpoint, when you have, you know, a screening program like FiberScan, and, you know, just the background of FiberScan, we know from the Barcelona, Rotterdam, Hong Kong cohorts that there's 5 to 10% of the general population with elevated liver stiffness and they're asymptomatic. So the fiber scan does have this potential to identify these people. But you have to reconsider the cost of the technology, the fiber scan itself, the cost of the intervention, whether that's weight loss or some potential therapeutic. But then when we look at what costs we get back, when we look at that in terms of how many cases of liver cancer will we prevent, how many liver transplants are prevented, how many fewer decompensated cirrhosis cases are there? Because these are the costly end stages of disease. But another important component of that is to look at disability-adjusted life years or quality adjusted life years. And these are the indirect costs. How much um, lost economic output, how much lost work productivity. And when we think about therapeutics or interventions, it's not just liver disease. If we're addressing NASH, we're also going to reduce costs associated with other facets of metabolic syndrome. So we're going to have reduced costs potentially for hypertension, reduced costs of managing dyslipidemia and diabetes. So it's kind of a, you know, a multifaceted approach. You have to look at what the intervention and the screening will cost and then what the outcome will be. And not just over the next few years, but over the coming decades. For example, if you can prevent someone from becoming obese, from ever developing NAFLD, I mean, that's actually the most cost-effective way of addressing disease. So it's kind of looking at inputs and outputs as well. And now, back to Roger. 
We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We will be back next week with a discussion on complex balloon hepatocytes, a topic of tremendous interest since it became a center of discussion at NASHTAG earlier this year. In addition to Stephen and Louise, we'll be joined by Quentin Anstey, Jorn Schottenberg, and Mazen Noradine to discuss the general issue. And after the close of that discussion, Dean Tai, Chief Scientific Officer of Histoindex, will join us for a discussion of the role that machine learning or AI-based algorithms can play in improving our analysis of balloon hepatocytes. That discussion is sponsored by Histoindex. Until then, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you on the podcast, hopefully next week. Bye-bye now. 